our guest today is Hava McKeel, the Director of uh, Government Relations, or I think it might be Government Affairs. I don't remember the exact <laughs> yeah. name of the group with GCSAA. Um, she is involved in a lot of things that affect the turf grass industry. Um, and I know, Hava, I have worked with you uh, on a couple of herbicide-related issues. But before we get into that, welcome. And if you don't mind, why don't you tell our audience uh, a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got into turf and working with superintendents, and we'll we'll go from there. Good morning, everyone, and thank you, Jim, for inviting me to your podcast today. I've appreciated working with you on several active ingredient issues in the last several years um, with EPA. But yes, um, in December, I um, reached a, a milestone. Um, I have worked at GCSAA for 25 years. So I was just a baby when I got started here, fresh out of college. Um, going back even further than that though, I was born and raised in central Kansas and I grew up on a farm. So um, I really valued that. Um, I mean, I drove tractors and sat in combines and my father has a lot of land and we had milo and soybeans and corn and livestock and specialty crops and all of that. So, you know, I grew up around the rhythm and the cycle of a farming community, a farming father, and uh, really enjoyed that and appreciated that. Um, always hearing my father complain about how expensive things cost, equipment, seeds, fertilizers, pesticides, always complaining about the weather. So by, by way of background, that, that's where I came from. I went to the University of Kansas after high school here in Lawrence and uh, got my degree in political science. Uh, I did not originally intend to get that degree, but I made my way to that degree halfway through my four-year period at KU. Um, in the middle of college, I had a, a we have a family friend who's actually a, was a senator in the Kansas legislature. She asked me to intern for her. So for my last two years of college, I spent time in the Kansas State Legislature working directly for her. She was the chairwoman of the Senate Ag Committee. Um, that particular experience um, got me to where I'm at with my political science degree. I drank the Kool-Aid and never looked back. So I love policy and politics and all those things. And I actually got to work in the Kansas legislature at a time there was some interesting things going on. Like for the first time ever, the legislature had to vote to increase the speed limit, you know, up to 70 miles an hour on I-70. And it was quite quite a discussion, a robust discussion about that. But anyway, um, I, I literally moved away for a year with my now ex-husband to Iowa after I got my degree, um, was homesick for Lawrence, uh, his project wrapped up there. I called a friend in Lawrence and said, are there any job openings? I wanna get back to, to my college town and there happened to be an opening, a low level position at GCSA for a communications director. So I didn't have any background in golf or experience with golf. I, I didn't, wasn't born and raised in a golfing family, but I applied for the job and, and, and got the job and worked here at GCSA for two years in the communications department. And then thankfully, 
a position opened up in the government affairs department. So I rolled into government affairs two years in and have been doing government affairs work for the association ever since. So I have about a 23 year track record of doing government affairs at GCSA and have like hit on every component part of it. Um, whether it's the state affairs piece, the regulatory piece. Um, in 2013, I became the director of the department and really at that time have the directed to get this particular uh, component piece of the association out of the shadows and make it more visible. And it became a core pillar of what GCSA does. So um, proud to have worked here all these years. And uh, to get back to my farming roots, uh, golf to me is urban ag. So it's a very easy transition in terms of just, you know, using inputs, relying on weather, relying on labor. There's a lot of similarities between ag and golf. There's differences, of, of course, but um, I have learned to love and become passionate about the game of golf over my tenure here, picked up the game, playing it a little bit when I can, but there's nobody that's more passionate about green spaces and communities and defending that across this country than me. So I love our superintendent members. They are the salt of the earth. They are wonderful. And I love to go talk about their professional land management to people all across this nation. So that's a little bit, Jim, about my background. Well, no, that's great. I mean, and it sounds like you said that you're, you know, it wasn't a one for one, but certainly some of the, the lessons from your farming background have applied. And you use the word, you know, defense in, in your comments, right? And I think <laughs> um, maybe that was intentional, maybe it wasn't. Um, but certainly, I think it's appropriate, you know, today's session with We've titled it, I think, issues or regulatory issues affecting pest management products. And I know um, it's not just one, you know, for those of us, those of you listening, Hava is involved in a lot of different fronts. And I know, you know, in, in the, the one or two forays I've had into that space with you, I was amazed by how quickly when one concludes, the next one surfaces. So I'm going to leave it to you, Hava. Where do you want to get started in terms of issues that our, our listeners should be aware of or things you've been working on that might affect her? Well, I have a little prop here. I, I don't know if you can see this, the listeners. We um, this This is what we call the blue book. Okay. This book uh, comes about because of our government affairs committee. This is nine or 11 uh, superintendents from around the country that gather together annually with me to help us determine what the issues are um, that we're going to focus on. I have a team, of, we are a team of five here. So just real quickly, um, we have a division of labor between five people in the government affairs department. I manage the department, but my focus is on regulatory affairs, especially at the federal level. So my focus is on most of my work is focused on the EPA partnership and working with EPA on active ingredient issues. Michael Lee's on our team. He does state affairs. So we have somebody taking uh, check, checking out what's going on in all 50 state legislatures and helping our members and chapters at the state level get engaged there on legislation regulations. We have Bob Helland who lives in Washington, DC. He's our federal lobbyist. His uh, role is to make sure that he covers Capitol Hill. 
and he does congressional affairs. We have support team. We have an intern from KU working for us. There's a lot going on, and we'll get into that today. But the blue book is our Bible. This is the, this is the issues that we focus on, and um, again, it's determined by the Government Affairs Committee, a body of superintendents that tell us, you know, this is what you're going to focus on. This is what the resources are going to focus on. And that has to be approved by GCSA's board of directors as well. So it includes information, uh, and this is online for anyone that wants to take a look at it. But for each issue that we cover, we have information about why it's important to golf and a position statement on it. And we use that in our lobbying efforts. We use that in conversations with the media. We use that in conversations with the general public. And the word that you said that's now ringing in my ears is defense. Um, I just wanted to let your listeners know that maybe this will surprise you, but the very first issue and the most important issue that's in this blue book is the value of golf. So a lot of people, you know, in our membership, they serve a golfing public, a golfing community. Um, and most of the people that they're around are people that love the game of golf, right? They're, they're growing grass to provide a, a sport to a, a, a group of individuals that love to play the game of golf. So in my role at GCSAA, I'm more of dealing with people that either hate golf and want it to go away and think it's a bad use of land and hate our use of inputs, or they're just ignorant of the sport and apathetic and don't care, or, or, or you know, and there's just people actively opposing us. So we have, we decided that the value of golf was really important to include in our agenda and just making sure that we're in the business of perception changing, making sure that people understand and appreciate the values that the golf course provides, golf course management provides, because if they don't, then they don't care about any of these other issues, such as water, pesticides, fertilizers, labor. So I'll just be real brief on this. Um, I don't know if all your listeners know this, but there in the U.S. tax code right now, there is language in there that looks, we call it the sin list. It looks upon golf as a, as a sin industry. Like we are lumped in with like, dog tracks, tattoo parlors, massage parlors, bedding establishments. And the, this sinless legislation came about in the 70s, but it really resurrected starting back in 2006. And that's when Hurricane Katrina hit the United States, and the southern you know, part around New Orleans and, and that region, and wiped out so many businesses down there. And you know, when there's like disasters of that magnitude, where there's a, a large section of the country that need to rebuild and, re, you know, redevelop, re recover from a natural disaster, there's always traditional disaster relief, but Congress will step in and provide additional tax relief. Well, they just said everybody gets that relief except this sin group. And so golf was out in terms of, you know, reinvestment and, re and, re and redevelopment. And this, this language carries through and it's like whack-a-mole, you know, whenever it pops up, we have to keep trying to push it back down and we're trying as best we can to just get it out of the tax code language, but we're not there yet. But it resurrected like in 2008 when they had like tornadoes and floods 
in the Midwest and Congress passed the Midwest Disaster Tax Relief Act. Again, everybody else gets the benefit of, you know, redevelop and recovery with tax benefits, but not golf, you're out. You're, you're a sin, you know, you're part of the sin list. And even when Obama came into office, he passed the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the job, I think you all remember that, the job creator bill, that sinless language was in there as well. So it's it's basically bipartisan. We've gotten knocked down <laughs> by Democrats and Republicans. But anyway, what I find with my team and, and myself personally day to day is just we're explaining to whoever we need to explain it to that turf grass is a value in the country and these green spaces are important and they provide a lot of benefit. Charitable, economic, environmental, I mean, you name it, the list goes on and on. So that's number one. And just our sport, Jim, we're on the defense about how, you know, this sport in general. But then yeah, moving okay. on, yeah, I don't know, yeah. I, I was gonna say for sure. I mean, and and it has to be hard to have you know, your, your blue book with the, with, you know, 10,000 foot view priorities that you want to try to advance and then continue to play defense, not only against, you know, on that tax code language stuff is new to me and I'm sure it's new to, to John as well. Um, but also the, the active ingredient uh, re-reg stuff that can, comes up as you're trying to advance these kind of priority initiatives have to spend with your group of five to get involved in a, a re-rich discussion with something like oxidiazone or PCMB, and then a labor issue might pop up that affects turf too. I mean, that's got to be difficult to balance. It is. It is. Um, I've spent a lot of time with the EPA over a long stretch, and we have really moved the needle when it comes to their perception of our industry. And I'm happy about that. Um, you know, I, it's a long game. Um, and of course, at, at the EPA, there are going to be some individuals that work there that just, you know, like out in the general public hate the game of golf and and they're going to be part of that demographic. But there's a lot of good people that work for the EPA and really value turf grass. So, um, so much so that this, I mean, we can get into this later if we want, but I mean, this relationship has really built over time in a positive way. Um, we were asked to serve for the first time in history a couple years ago on the EPA's federal, um, it's called the PPDC, Pesticide Policy Dialogue Committee. It's the who's who in the nation of people that are, you know, care about pesticide policy. So there's 40 coveted spots on that federal advisory group. And GCSA has one of them. Our director of environmental programs, Mark Johnson, serves on the PPDC. So, you know, I, I know he hates me for this, but he gets to sit next to the, all the opposition, you know, all the, the, the groups out there that hate, hate golf and sue golf. But it's a good exercise. So um, it's about us being able to have a seat at that big table and, uh, you know, talk about all the great things we're doing, our professional land management, the best management practices program, our professional use of products, you know, our pollinator protection, you name it, it goes on and on. But we also signed a formal memorandum of understanding with the US EPA back in September last year. And, you know, if you go to the EPA website right now, you'll see a press release 
um, that talks about from EPA, you know, these are their words, that golf course management is important and turf grass is important uh, and golf courses are important in our community. communities. So we've come a long way, baby, is what I say. But anyway, that doesn't mean we don't have, you know, day-to-day -day challenges that we work. And I think that kind of helps us maybe transition um, into some of the other issues and, and things we want to talk about today with our audience. Um, again, in the blue book, once you get past the value of golf, the other issues that are of primary focus to my team are labor, obviously, water, pesticides, fertilizers, um, and uh, equipment, power equipment. So those are all the kind of the major component parts of what makes up golf course management. And if any of, the, any of those things are out of whack, we, we got problems. So I don't know, Jim, you want to kind of, should we dive in a little bit into the pesticide world? Yeah, I mean, and I think we could do one-off episodes on every single thing you just listed <laughs> yeah. from labor to water to pesticides to fertilizer. I mean, uh, we can start with pesticide. I know many in our audience are interested in that because they you know, rely on that technology for what they do in their businesses. Um, you know, I think most are aware that all pesticides go through a re-registration mm. process on a, on a, you know, time-based schedule. You and I just wrapped up one uh, collaboratively with several other folks with oxidiazon, a herbicide used in turf under the trade name Ronstar. Um, and, you know, to give your group kudos, the, the, for those that are listening that might be unaware, when these re-reg decisions come down, there's a public comment period. And obviously the, the registrants, those who manufacture these products, you know, provide comments. Um, but the comments of of end users like yourselves and you know, researchers like myself and and John Sorokin, who's with us as well, you know, those voices matter. And then your your key membership groups like GCSAA, you know, they, they, those voices matter a lot and everybody was involved in the comment period for that and I think Haba we got kind of positive feedback from EPA that it was almost a model of how they want to see these dialogues go. Exactly um, you know just real 30,000 foot if if you walk into the EPA building um, in you know near Reagan Airport like I was there yesterday um, you know that the Office of Pesticide Programs OPP, they handle the registration review process and the registration of new active ingredients. So there's different divisions there. Um, I work with registrants to help shepherd through new active ingredients through the registration division. And there's a whole process that goes along with that. But I would say I'd spend far more time working with PRD. Um, that's the re-registration division. So there's a process um, with any active ingredient. So that's one of my primary roles at GCSA. I have to, I follow the federal register every single day and I go down to the EPA section of it and I see like what active ingredients are popping up in the federal register that EPA is working on. So any given day, you know, something will pop up and then you'll know, oh, this is okay, something new to add to the plate. And there's been a lot of that going on, especially in the last like three years, because the registration review process, it's not a new active, it's something that's been out on the market for a long period of time. The EPA is required to reevaluate every active ingredient once every 15 years. 
So that 15-year window was supposed to be concluded last fall. They didn't meet their deadline and Congress gave them an extension. So they have two more years to meet that. But if you can imagine, there was just this slew of active ingredients being reviewed in the fight, trying to get to that final timeline last fall. So we were just like seeing actives pop up on a real regular basis. But just for you, the audience, um, the reg review process has some formal stages to it. I don't think you can see this, but maybe you can. This is my cheat sheet, the arrows here. Um, basically, with any active ingredient, when the EPA is going to look at it again um, after you know it being on the market for a long period of time, they're going to see what the latest research says about it and the science and the data. They're going to um, work with the registrants to put together a preliminary work plan. That's the first stage. So that's just sort of their roadmap for relooking at this active ingredient. You know, and it's going to take years. This is not going to play out in six months. This is usually a two to three year process. Um, they'll finalize the work plan with the registrants and then they'll do what's called a data call in. And that's where the registrants will go grab all the data that the EPA is asking them for, whether it's test toxicity, animal testing, you name it, just all the pieces of the data that they want from the registrants. They will gather all of this data and they will then put out for public comment what is called a risk assessment. And FIFRA is, we love FIFRA, it's the federal you know, law that governs the registration and use of pesticides in our country. Um, the risk assessment's good because it's a risk benefit analysis. So the EPA is always going to look at what are the risks for the use of this active ingredient and what are the benefits? And they are going to look at all of those pieces of data and trying to find the sweet spot in the middle of that, you know, where there is no harm to human health or the environment. That is their standard. But GCSA gets involved on all these active ingredients, traditionally on the benefit side of the coin. So your EFED, your Environmental Fate and Effects Division are the one that are gonna do the kind of the risk side of the coin. The B Division, that's the Biological Economic Analysis Division, they're going to do the benefit side of this risk benefit analysis. So the B team at EPA calls me or emails me when actives come up that are used on golf and they'll provide me a long laundry list of we need the answers to these questions. And that's pretty traditional for this risk assessment process. So for any active ingredient, we usually have two bites at the apple. It's the preliminary risk assessment where we will weigh in, the turf grass scientists may weigh in. Certainly we might need superintendents to weigh in, you know, and provide good background information to the agency um, during that risk assessment process. That information's all gathered then and then there's a, a period of time where EPA looks at all that public comment. And then the second bite of the apple that comes down the road is when they put out a PID. It's a preliminary interim decision. So that's where the rubber meets the road. When you see a PID come out, that's where you're gonna see what the changes, the proposed changes are to the label. And that's pretty much gonna be your last chance 
for you know a long period of time to weigh in if you are in support or against the the proposed label changes. And so I know working with Jim on different active ingredients, we've worked together on the risk assessment side, but more we worked <laughs> together on the PID side. But you want to weigh in with public comment. It is so important. And just to share with your your readers. About three weeks ago, I was in Washington, D.C. at the APCO meeting. Um, the AP APCO is the American Association of Pesticide Control Officials. So if you think about it, I was in a ballroom with Fed EPA, you know, the folks that run the registration and registration review divisions, but also in the room were all the directors from the state departments of ag the state lead agencies, they're co-regulators with EPA and pesticide, pesticide matters. So we went um, and had an, our annual meet, the APCO annual meeting, and I was there. And I had a chance after the head of the registration review division um, spoke and presented, I had a chance to run out in the hallway and, and grab her. And I had a good conversation with her about um, the importance of weighing with public comment in during this process that I'm describing. And I'm just letting you know how important and influential that is. Um, we put up a lot of action alerts, letting our members know like, this is happening to this particular active that you use. These are the proposed label changes. And we ask you to wait with public comment. In my history at GCSAA, we used to put up a lot of form letters, like I would write the letter that, you know, what I wanted it to say to go to EPA. And we might have two, 300 superintendents and others go to our website, put in their contact information, hit send, and the same sort of response went to the EPA in, you know, in bulk. The EPA does not like that. In fact, I, when I was talking to them at three weeks ago, they said, we're going to count that as one. It doesn't matter if 300 people, we're counting that as one. What we care about more is, you know, quality comments. If you have five, if you have 10, 20, 30 substantive comments coming in from a superintendent that talks about the true impact of a decision that they're making, those have so much more weight than any kind of like form letter that you we could send that you could we could send in in volume. So I thought that would be important for y'all to know that, you know, as we work on active ingredients, and we can talk about a few of these here in a moment, but when these come up and GCSA puts out the call for like, we need people to weigh in with public comment if you care about this, it's really important that you do. It definitely yeah. makes a difference. And I'm, and I'm as guilty as anybody. I mean, there's there's so many of these, it, off, it often kind of becomes white noise in a way, yeah. right? Because it, there's just, just so much volume. and you know, for me personally, when I saw the the PID on oxidiazon, that was pretty alarming um, because of the the degree of the proposed changes. And to your your point about you know how to respond, you know the the idea, at least the the research community took, was we had a single letter um, that talked about a lot of those benefits. And you know, one of the things is is you know in the herbicide world, is resistance issues have manifested and. Uh, whatnot, you know, one of the having mode of action diversity is a big benefit and, and losing a mode of action for resistance management like Ron Starr would have been, um, that was a big deal. And I know, you know, in the sports turf world, there, there's 
quite a bit of uh, oxidizon reliance and high level sports turf because it doesn't inhibit root growth on warm season grasses. And for that use to be completely deleted um, was a was a fairly big deal. So, I mean, I think those are all pertinent, uh, you know, pertinent comments about how to communicate things. So they're heard. And, and to my surprise, they were heard, right? When I read the final decision, yeah. you know, I went into it a little naively, kind of first first time to the dance and didn't really know if the letter that we submitted would be read. And it was very much read. It was referenced in the final decision on uh, that they put out on Oxidiazon. So that was that was cool. We got a question here for you, Hava. Uh, question is, do you have any advice on things that we can do as superintendents to help educate our local leaders and local population? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I, we have a grassroots ambassador program. I'll start with that. Um, and it's just expanded. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but this program started back in 2014. And the goal was to pair up a member of GCSA with every member of Congress, sort of in a buddy system, because communication is key. And you have to default to unawareness. <laughs> you have to default that people don't know about golf course management and what you do at your properties. And you have to default actually to them thinking you do the worst of the, like you just, you spray wall to wall, you just dump so much water on there. Um, you know, you got to dial it back with with conversations. We have this ambassador program where we pair up members of Congress with our um, superintendents. And right now we're, we have 90% uh, of the 535 members of Congress covered by an ambassador from GCSA. The North Star in this program is that you take the training from us that we provide. We have online curriculum on our website that teaches you how to advocate. How do you reach out to a, uh, an elected official? How do you um, communicate on our issues? The North Star, again, is having them come out to the golf course to do a site visit. A lot of our ambassadors are starting off at the district office, however, and having meetings with their, the Congress, member of Congress or their staff at the district office and eventually making their way to a meeting where you actually bring out a policymaker onto the golf course to explain to them and show them in real, you know, real time what professional land management is. We have changed that program in the last six to nine months where we used to have just one person per congressional district. We've opened it up. We're focusing now more at the state level. So advocacy at the state level, not just with federal lawmakers, but with state lawmakers. But the skill set and the principles that apply with that program, that applies to if you're talking to the media, if you're talking to a homeowner, right? I mean, it's just all about engagement. It's all about communications, relationship building. So I'm not sure who's asking that question, but I would be happy to talk to you after the webinar and get you started or help prepare you for any kind of interactions that you want to have. So um, we need yeah. engagement as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And, and to drill down even to just a single, whether it's a golf course or a sports field or even a lawn care business, I mean, I think if I can put words in your mouth, Hava, what you're saying, I think is, you know, don't be afraid to have a conversation. 
Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I give presentations on this. I just did one at the New England Turfgrass Conference recently about, you know, I think we're really good in, in the turf industry at talking to ourselves about this. And we're not so good about talking to people who aren't in the turf industry about this. And, you know, I think when we look at it, we all spray as minimally as we possibly can, right? We, we the pesticides that we use are expensive, maybe more so now in 2023 than ever before. We try to make as few applications as possible, the reference water, water as, as minimally as possible. And communicating that, I think, to you, like you said, to people who aren't in our uh, our field is important, whether it's a member at your club or a coach of a soccer team uh, or what have you, that you're out there, you know, using these things as minimally as possible. And I think another thing is to understand that most human beings are risk averse. So mm -hmm. I think part of that conversation is also communicating the risks of not doing this, right? If we, mm -hmm. if we don't make these applications, there are going to be risks conferred from that mm -hmm. and kind of walking somebody through what that might be um is the right direction is it gonna you know be an aha moment for every single person that you talk to about this absolutely not um but it's it's a long game scenario we have another question here um it says the epa is implementing new labeling guidelines for row crop herbicide products to adjust the endangered species act mm -hmm. will the same or similar labeling guidelines be implemented for herbicides used in sports turf oh yes Okay, so um, we are definitely going to talk about this. So what I was describing to you earlier was the FIFRA process, the risk-benefit analysis and the PIDs, right? Um, that's the FIFRA registration and registration review process. What's really, really hot and happening right now and, and going to be really a big focus in our in our future, whether you're sports turf ag or golf or lawn care, is the Endangered Species Act review of pesticides. So not to get too far down in the weeds, because that's where I live and I like to play down there. But the Endangered Species Act, if you read that law, section seven is key. Okay. Section seven of the Endangered Species Act says that if there is any agency that is going to take an action that might threaten or harm fed, uh, endangered species or their habitat, they have to consult with like the US Wildlife Fish and Wildlife Service or the US National Marine Fisheries Service and those federal wildlife agency. So there is a formal, it's called an ESA Section 7 consultation process. It's been in the ESA since the beginning. Well, what's happened is that over a long period of time, and the EPA will admit this, they just really did not do a good job of complying with the ESA Section 7 consultation process. So they got the pantsuit off of them for about a 10 year stretch. And there, there's so more lawsuits than the law should allow, you know? And it, uh, it was obviously an attempt to ban products by suing over section seven and this lack of consultation going on between agencies. And it got to like what I call the ludicrous point, you know? Uh, there was a tipping point 
when there were so many lawsuits out there that the National Academy of Sciences was called to step in and try to get everybody to come together and come up with a better process, okay? And, and get it kind of resurrected. But right now the EPA is absolutely buried in meeting court deadlines from being sued over section seven of the from the Endangered Species Act. So the Biden administration has come in and appointed someone at a top political level um, who is an ESA expert. And one of his uh, key assignments for coming on board at EPA was to fix this longstanding problem. So they've taken a, a hard look at how do we get improve this ESA consultation process between the EPA, the USDA, and these, these other agencies. So just last year, they you know, showed us their cards. They put out their, what they're calling, and the, e, the EPA put out what they're calling their Endangered Species Act work plan. And um, it's their roadmap for how they're going to, you know, expedite the, re the evaluation and the review of pesticides against the species and habitat. They just in November put out an update to that original work plan, and I just wrote public comment and weighed in with it. So you're right. Um, what's, what's basically going on with the proposal is they're speeding up putting um, restrictions on a, a product label, uh, they're moving that part of the process um, up sooner. So the ESA pro uh, consultation process is a three-step process. Two steps are in the hands of EPA and then the final step in the hands of the services. In the first two steps of the process, EPA has to just do some kind of determination. Will the use of this product, may it affect the species or habitat. Yes. Okay. Move to part two. Could there be an adverse, you know, effect on the species? Yes. Okay. Move it into the hands of the services. The services used to be kind of the where the rubber meets the road. They they were the ones that tried to find out where the actual harm was taking place and putting the mitigation around that to try to prevent that. Now, Think this was a years, years long effort, right? So you're you're doing this evaluation, this Endangered Species Act consultation process, and you're but you're not putting any kind of restrictions, new restrictions on on a label until years later. So with the EPA's new proposal, it's flipping it. It's putting those you know potential mitigations, potential restrictions up on the label first, then doing a bunch of you know evaluations. And then at the end of that, if they need to be removed, they will, or if they'll stay, they'll stick, they will. So I'm working on this right now because the EPA's put out, uh, in, again, in the spirit of this new Endangered Species Act review, for the ag side of the coin, they've put out um, what are called pick lists, okay? When you think about pick lists, you're picking BMPs for protection. So these ag, it's it's basically a menu of best management practices. So Mark and I, Dr. Unruh and others, we've been reviewing the pick list of upfront mitigations that the EPA's developed 
looking at the ag side, you know, when you look at it, it's not uh, applicable. It's not appropriate for golf, right? But they're going to get to non-ag spaces soon. So we're taking a look right now at our BMPs that we have that national template of BMPs that came about through our BMPs initiative. We're taking a look at that and getting ahead of this and figuring out how to construct a pick list for golf that makes sense that, you know, if you're going, it's basically the construct of this is going to be that if you are going to be allowed to use this product in the future, you're going to have to pick from a list of things that are going to protect species in order for you to continue using the product. I hope this is making sense, but some are at a higher level, some are at a lower level. Maybe if you don't have the ability for some reason to pick that higher level BMP, you can pick two or three lower level bees, uh, lower level BMPs combined and protect the species, and then you'll be able to use the product. So I hope that answered your the the question from from the audience. Um, but yes, this is wow. definitely going to impact golf, and we are in a position right now. Number one, we're thankful that GCSA <laughs> launched a BMPs initiative back in 2017. And we now have 50 state BMP programs, right? We didn't know back then in 17 that in 2022 and 2023, their EPA was going to be focused on this, the development of these pick lists, which are basically BMPs. And now we're positioned well to try to guide and direct these, you know, these efforts with the, EV, the EPA in terms of protection of species. Because I will tell you, because of meetings that I've been in, there are activist groups in the country, they like one size fits all approach. For you to protect, use this product and protect species like across the board, no matter what, you all have to put in these buffer strips as they define them and that's it, right? We don't think that's the right approach. We wanna, you know, we want more choice than that, yeah, no, that more that flexibility to operate. That makes total sense. And and yeah. I've got follow-up questions on this topic just as somebody who works in extension. And I know that I'm going to be asked about this by folks that work in lawn care or sports store, sports turf or golf courses. Um, so I want to make sure I understand this correctly. And, and we've got an expert here in ESA and, and you can you can get me on the straight and narrow. So am I understanding this correctly that say I am running a lawn care company right now and I have a suite of pesticide products that I rely on pretty heavily to do what I do. In my understanding it correctly, where the, the products that I'm using, when they go back through that re-registration cycle that you referenced earlier, that now they're going to be re-registered under a, a FIFRA banner. And then they're also going to have to go through another process to satisfy the Endangered Species Act, which if true, would then make the process of re-registration even longer. Is that Mike understanding that correctly? Oh, it's it's you are understanding it correctly, and it's even more than that. So <laughs> the head of the registration division at APCO even described it beautifully. You go through the work plan, the data call-in, the risk assessment, the PID, right? You think you're at the end of the road, you're not, okay? What's after that comes the ESA piece, the, the, the um, consultation process, 
There's a whole pollinator protection review. That's another piece of this. There's a cumulative, cumulative review <laughs> that happens. There's a few more things before you can actually get to what's called a final decision on any active ingredient. Um, right now, the way this is constructed, the ESA uh, consultation piece of this, Jim, happens after the PID, okay? Where EPA would like this to happen is to like to be taking place on a parallel track while they're doing the risk assessment phase. So it's not there yet. Things are not in alignment, but they would like to have that piece of it done sooner. But you are correct. There is a lot of different, you know, examinations of the uses product before it can actually get to an FD, which is a final determination. So I'm going to ask you a speculative question, and you might defer and say I don't want to answer. But I, I, I know <laughs> okay. I would be, I know I would be asked this to somebody in extension. So is it then? There's there a world where, say, a a, a herbicide or a fungicide or an insecticide that's been around for a long time. Uh, goes back through re-registration and it doesn't satisfy, say, an ESA requirement where then it would be resulting with it not being labeled for your use in turf anymore? You know, I haven't seen that play out yet, so I don't know. But I mean, I think that the goal would be to try to get to a place where we could label it and still use it. Um, but again, I haven't seen that played out where an ESA analysis would get a cancellation. Um, that wouldn't be a goal, but I don't know, Jim, I haven't seen that played out yet. I, I see more of the cancellation of products happen through the FIFR process outside of the ESA consultation process. Well, we're gonna be positive today and hope it doesn't come to that. I did wanna share with your, you know, in advance of your podcast, just for fun, and it's going to help me in the future, you can't see it, but I put this cheat sheet together just to kind of give your listeners an idea of what the last three years of, have looked like and maybe some of the things that we've, the EPA's focused on and what we've weighed in on starting in 2020. Um, well, I don't have this in time order, so never mind that, but we're working on biostimulants, okay? That's actually a congressional matter. So the biostimulants don't have a good regulatory home. And there is an effort right now to give it a good definition so that it can find the proper regulatory home and, and how it's going to be regulated in the future, right? And we're working on, we're in the biostimulants coalition trying to define what a biostimulant is and what's the appropriate, you know, regulatory scheme around it. And then once we land on that, getting that passed by Congress and then being used as, you know, at the state, getting that as a state model. The other thing is on the list here is chlorothalonil. There's a lot of fungicides being reviewed by EPA right now. So in 21, we weighed in on the risk assessment. And then shortly thereafter, we found out and got blindsided that Canada was going to ban chlorothalonil. So we enlisted the superintendents in Canada to weigh in with their EPA equivalent and push back on that proposal. And they were very effective. They, that, that matter, that has stopped in its tracks. Um, and we haven't heard yet 
the final outcome of that, but there was enough public comment that came in from the industry in Canada to push back on that, that that has not been approved yet. But in terms of chlorothalonil, the next step for that is going to be the PID coming up, but we haven't seen it yet. Chlorpyrolid um, in 2020 went through risk assessment, um, but it hasn't had a PID yet. Fipronil risk assessment, same. Lots of stuff going on with glyphosate, as you know. That's a whole nother. <laughs> that's a whole. Well, that's a whole nother episode. You and I, I think, worked on iprodione. That actually went through the risk assessment phase and made its way to the PID stage, and we weighed in with that. And so did a lot of turf grass scientists. I'm not sure if you were part of that effort, but they were proposing for iprodione to put it to teasing. I think teasing greens only, and 2.6 pounds of AI uh, per acre once per year. And we all said collectively, that's just too restrictive. So we're waiting, they are reviewing the public comment that came out on that one. And we're waiting to see what the final you know, decision is. Final, that's another, final in quotes. And that's <laughs> another good example of mode of action diversity in the fungicide world, you know, right. for supporting that still being uh, available for use amongst those who use it. Yeah. You know, I'm looking here at neonics, all those insecticides. Um, I, I lied, I guess, earlier when I said you only have two bites at the apple. For any active ingredient, you actually really have four, <laughs> four bites at the apple right now. You've got the two bites at the apple through the FIFRA process, the risk assessment and the PID. But when you do the Endangered Species Act consultations, you know, in, as well, there's two bites at the apple there. So the EPA, when they do their step one and step two, they put out a document that's called the biological evaluation. You have to weigh in on that. Did the EPA do its work right? You know, And then when it gets over in the hands of the services, the services, their final product's called a bi-op, a biological opinion. And you got to weigh in with public comment on that. So for like glyphosate, I think I've written four sets of comments in the last you know, three or four years on that. But real quickly, oxidiazon, we've talked about that. That went, you and I saw this. This went from a proposal of an outright ban to a proposal, I think, during the risk assessment to uh, fairway only. And no sports and then, turf. And no sports turf uh, to a final decision where we at least got to keep it. And, you know, it's really... It can be used now limited to 30%, I think, of, of a golf course turf area, but it's not limited to a certain part of the golf course, um, and the rates are reasonable and things like that. But that actually made its way to a final decision, and we hosted a webinar where people can learn more about that together. PCMB went through risk assessment last year, and we weighed in with that. They just issued a cancellation for PCMB. Uh, you know, just a couple months ago. Which for those listening, if you're unfamiliar, that's a fungicide used for snow mold control uh, in parts far north of Tennessee. Yeah. So they're proposing to cancel it outright. And again, we weighed in with strong opposition to that. And a lot of superintendents, we put up a, a, you know, an opportunity with, with an action alert for weighing public comment. We wrote comments, scientists wrote comments, registrants wrote comments. We'll see. It's pending. We don't know if they'll be able, we'll be able to dial that one back from the brink, 
Um, and then finally, rodenticides. Um, EPA is looking at all rodenticides right now. They have proposed pretty much making everything restricted use, respirator use, and banning a lot of application methods that are used on golf courses. So we weighed in against that proposal. We're still waiting to see the outcome of that. And the one that just wrapped up last week was thiophanate methyl. Mm -hmm. So that's another important fungicide. And New Farm reached out to us, said, please weigh in with this. We did a webinar. It's on our website. You can learn more about that. But it was very, this was a really interesting one because with thiophanate methyl during the risk assessment process, the EPA didn't have any problems with golf use of it at all. It passed all tests, no, no nothing. And then when the pit came up, um, they they proposed a limit that was so low that it would be rendered virtually useless, uh, ineffective. And what happened is they lumped golf in with residential use and applied residential rates to the golf use. And no one knows why. So our public comments that we put into the docket last week was sort of like, like you need to untangle these things and leave golf alone. And then we should be fine. So was it a paperwork problem? I don't know. Uh, or intended. I don't know. But we all weighed in with public comment on that. And we had about 50 members weigh in on that one with some really substantive comments about how taking the rate that low would just, you know, we might as well not have the product on the market. So anyway, that's just a small snapshot of all of the active ingredients that we've been weighing in with, with you, Jim, and other scientists and our superintendents trying to keep them on the market, keeping the tools in the toolbox. Yeah, and we've got a question here, which I know we don't have time to fully unpack um, about fertilizers. And uh, the mm -hmm. question is about, there's a, and, and maybe Michael Lee, if he was here, could comment because you said he works with state legislatures yeah. about a bill in Hawaii uh, trying to uh, phase out synthetic fertilizer use in that state. Anything in the ether that you've come across about that at the federal level? Not at the federal level. I haven't, you know, the things died down at the federal level in terms of fertilizer use um, after Obama left office. Um, we, when he came into office in 09, he put fertilizers on the map. I mean, he that was when he declared the Chesapeake Bay the national treasure and said we needed to expedite the cleanup of the bay. Um, and, you know, fertilizers were definitely more on the federal radar when that happened because the, the construct of the cleanup of the bay in terms of nutrient use, phosphorus use, sediment loads, that became a model for cleanup in other parts of the country, Puget Sound, Great Lakes, the Gulf of Hypex, Hypoxic Zone in Mexico. So, you know, that was sort of the, the push that got us into the whole BMPs initiative was watch, watching that play out. And fertilizers were, you know, again, or at the federal level were really on the radar then, but it's it's died down at the federal level. It's been more of a state issue, like you said, mm -hmm. especially in Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, Florida's got, a, and then we're running out of time, but we had a really positive thing happen in Florida because Florida doesn't have fertilizer preemption. It's local control there. There's over 110, I think, ordinances at the city and county level in Florida on how you use, how you can use, 
fertilizers and there's restrictions. And, you know, again, it's been whack-a-mole trying to beat back down these regs or these, these proposed bans on fertilizer use or blackout periods. Um, Golf worked with lawmakers in that state to put a bill forward last year. The construct of it is, is if you become certified in the Florida BMPs program, then you are exempt from proposed ba fertilizer bans in the state and pesticide bans. And Governor DeSantis signed that last year. So that's a that was a good success story. But I am not familiar um, to your caller or your, your audience. I am not familiar with the fertilizer bill in Hawaii, but I have no doubt that Michael Lee on my team is, and they're all over it. So um, maybe you can email me after this podcast and I can get you in touch with him for him to update you on where things stand with that and what efforts are being done to address it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Hav, if I've learned nothing today, I've learned you're a very busy person who's involved in a lot of different fronts. Um, so I'm going to wrap us up here and get everybody off to lunch. For our uh, superintendents that are interested, again, in GCSAA CEUs, um, the event approval code um, is on your screen right now. Um, if you are watching this as a recording on YouTube, you want to make sure that you put the actual event date, April 4th. Uh, the same would be true if you are listening to this uh, on our podcast feed. That you want to put today's event date as April 4th when you enter your approval code for superintendent education credits. Hava, I will uh, just conclude by by thanking you for all that you shared. I mean, we we I think we only skimmed the surface today of everything we could have talked about <laughs> in terms of other issues. Um, so thank you for your time. And um, our next Turf Tuesday will be uh, in May. The, the topic of that will be on the upcoming World Cup coming to the Americas in 2026. My colleague, uh, John Sorokin, who's been here and, and quiet today. We're going to trade roles next week, and he's going to be kind of the lead talking about all the work going on with the World Cup, and I'm going to be the one who's uh, following along and learning. So thanks to everybody for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.